from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to our annual holiday episode of the Cry Havoc Podcast. On December 12, 2017, the Cry Havoc community gathered for our annual holiday event, where we invited our audience to join us for an evening of holiday goodies and readings from this year's annual collection of very short holiday plays, written for our Havoc for the Holidays program, which we'll tell you more about later in the episode. This year, 17 of our playwrights wrote new holiday plays for the Havoc for the Holidays collection. Like every year, each of our playwrights were given an assignment. Each of the very short holiday plays was to be no longer than five pages, to take place during the holiday season, to feature at least one character from a play that they or another playwright had developed in the workshop, and to be inspired by a randomly assigned song. This year, to celebrate Cry Havoc's 20th anniversary, each of the inspiration songs were referenced in a play or screenplay that was developed with Cry Havoc over the past 20 years. What follows is a live reading of seven of these plays, each followed by a selection from the song that inspired it and a few words from the playwright about how the play came to be. So sit back and enjoy. Happy holidays from all of us at Cry Havoc, and we will now join the event with the first of our very short holiday plays. So first up, we have Humbug by Caitlin Wilcox, uh, inspired by the song I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, uh, which was referenced in Jersey's play, All Over Me, How Does It Feel? Uh, and uh, it features the character Susan from her play Magic of Macy's. And so we have Matt Cowart and Jenny Kerr. Humbug. Lights up on a candlelit table for two in a romantic restaurant tastefully decorated for the holidays. There are two poured champagne flutes on the table. Ben, a young man in a suit, sits at the table checking his phone. He is totally square. He occasionally looks toward the door. After a few moments, Susan, a young woman in a heavy coat, rushes in. He smiles broadly, pockets his phone, and stands. Hi. 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 I'm sorry. I'm late. Again. Susan wiggles out of her coat. It's just, it's Macy's. Three weeks before Christmas. It's a circus. Uh, one of my new clerks had a total meltdown, and it took me 30 minutes to talk her off the ledge. And I, I told you I probably wouldn't be able to it's get okay. here on time. And I, and I know I was late for brunch on Sunday, too. It's just, I work really hard for this promotion, but we just met a few months ago, and I don't want you to think I'm just some flake or something. I don't think that. Just, just wait till tax season rolls around, then you can forgive me for being late all the time. Right. <laughs> He reaches across the table and takes her hand. He raises his glass to toast. She clinks his glass and they drink. I have a surprise for you. He pulls two tickets out of his pocket in his jacket and hands them to her. Merry Christmas. She peers at the tickets. Remember the other night you were talking about how you used to love dance and took lessons for all those years? You got us tickets to A Christmas Carol, the ballet? 
Well, you said you wanted to do something special to celebrate your promotion, so I thought it would be perfect. Besides, it's Christmas. Who doesn't love a little Dickens? He beams. <laughs> her face falls, then suddenly hardens. I don't. But it's a classic. I just, I don't think I want to watch some old dude pirouetting around in tights and, and mutton chops. I hear he's very good. No, I just I just think it's kind of stupid. Um, that whole idea of like, looking back on your life and learning from your mistakes, it's so cheesy. Nobody actually does that. Well, I'd say in an ideal world. Well, this definitely you? isn't an ideal world, is it? She takes a swig of champagne. <laughs> Something happened? I got an email from Lewis today. Ben bristles. No, actually not from Lewis, from his office. To me and probably 5,000 of his closest mailing list subscribers inviting us to check out his showing at the Lorimer Gallery. I'm still on his freaking email list. Can't you just, like, click unsubscribe? Susan stares dead around. <laughs> and what would I check for the reason box, Ben? Recipient finds it painful to hear about the success of the man she was supposed to spend the rest of her life with? Okay, sorry. I, just look, just let me take you to the ballet. Even if it's stupid, it'll just take your mind off things. Okay, look, Ben, you know all those dance lessons I took? That wasn't just some childhood hobby. I was serious about it. I wanted to be a professional dancer. I auditioned for the ballet twice. Obviously, that didn't work out. You know, going to see them would just be like rubbing my face in it, and Lewis's email already did that enough for one day. Ben, maybe... I, I don't think I'm the kind of person you should be with. Where did that come from? We're just really different, and before things get too serious, we might as well just acknowledge We're that. We're not that different. Well, you're responsible and on time... And dress like my dad. And uh, <laughs> I'm more of a free spirit. So what you're really saying is that I'm not the kind of person you should be with. Look, Ben, I really like you, but I need to be with someone spontaneous and artistic and exciting. <laughs> You're just not who I thought I'd end up with. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Lewis was the kind of guy you thought you'd end up with, and how'd that work out for you? Okay. okay, see, this is what I'm talking about. I can't be with some Mr. Perfect who's going to remind me about every mistake I've ever made, because I've made a lot of them. Quitting dancing, the quickie divorce, working a crappy, boring job just to please my parents. This is not the life I was supposed to have. Well, it's the life you have, and I'm sorry to break it to you, but it's pretty great. Don't say that. It's a mess. I'm a mess. And eventually you're going to realize that, and you'll change your mind, just like he did. Look, I know you've been through a lot. Someone who said they loved you turned out to be a truly terrible person. But that doesn't mean... Oh, but that's the best part. Louis never even told me he loved me. Even after we got married, he said he said love was this meaningless expression and weren't we too evolved to debase our relationship by using it. This was the guy I stupidly thought I'd grow old with, have kids with. He was a bad guy. I'm not a bad guy. That's a problem. You're a good guy. Too good for me. And before I know it, you'll be gone. And meanwhile, I've started naming our kids in my head and I end up alone with a broken heart all over again. Susan, you know what I think the truth is? 
I think you wouldn't know a good thing if it bit you in the keister. <laughs> bit me in the ass! You can't even say ass! Okay, <laughs> look, maybe you don't have the sexiest job in the world, but it's a good job, and you're good at it. When you told me about your promotion, your smile was so big, I thought it would fly right off your face. You're actually secretly happy, and you need to stop punishing yourself for not being as disappointed in your life as you think you're supposed to be. Well, when it comes to my divorce, you're clearly disappointed enough for both of us. Okay, that was a low blow. I should not have said it. But yes, you've made some mistakes. Everyone has, even Mr. Perfect. But we should try and learn from our mistakes. So yeah, I might call you out on them. But I hope you call me out on mine too. Because that's what people who love each other do. Love? Well, yeah. I love you, Susan. You love me? Yes, you idiots! Okay, you're this passionate, wild force of nature, and it makes me feel kind of passionate and wild, too, and I love it. That Lewis guy? was an ass. <laughs> Susan breaks into a smile so big it looks like it might fly right off her face. She engulfs Ben in a huge hug and he breathes a sigh of relief. Anything you'd like to say in return? Susan pulls back from the hug and smirks at him. You love me. <laughs> You're the one who was already naming our kids. That was a moment of weakness. Well, what did you pick? Uh, I kind of liked the sound of Benjamin Jr. Oh, um, uh, my name's not actually Benjamin. Oh, I, fi I figured Ben was a nickname. It is. Oh. For what? Ebenezer. <laughs> it's a family name! <laughs> The Scrooge family? Stop it. Okay. Well, we're not naming our kid Ebenezer. Well, at least I don't have mutton chops and tights. Oh my god, you're an accountant. Stop it! <laughs> you're lucky I love you. She pulls him into her and kisses him. They melt into each other. Lights fade. Blackout. End of play. <laughs> Again, that was Humbug by Caitlin Wilcox. It was inspired by I Can't Get No Satisfaction, which sounds a little bit like this, though I think you know it. <laughs> So, um, this song made me think about people who are kind of constantly dissatisfied with their lives, even when they don't really have a reason to be. And um, <clears throat> I've written the character of Susan in a bunch of my holiday plays, and she's always, um, like, stuff is always a mess for her. And so I thought, what if things were actually going well for her this year, but she can't even recognize it? And um, I also really wanted to write a happy holiday play this year because we have a habit of writing sad Christmas at our So um, I figured the world is sad enough right now. I should try to write a happy holiday play. So. <laughs> All right. 
And uh, incidentally, thank you very much to Jenny Curlin and Jersey Gwizdowski, who will be reading stage directions uh, throughout the evening. Uh, next up, we have Before the Horse by Jerry Tobin, inspired by the song Paradise City by Guns N' Roses, uh, reference to the play Freak Flag by Tim Davis, and featuring the characters Chrissy Ramirez and Beth Adler from his play Lee. Uh, and we have Jen Kirkman and Caitlin uh, Wilcox. Before the Horse, a very short holiday play by Jerry Tobin. On the Adler farm that sits outside of Bloomington, Indiana, Chrissy, a nine-months pregnant Hispanic woman, aged 23, lies in bed. Beth, a stout white woman, 32, hurries in with a large cardboard box. She sets it down and begins unpacking different Christmas decorations, including a small snowman, a manger, a tangled ball of lights, and a Santa Claus figurine. You're not wasting any time. Well, you meant what you said, didn't you? Beth puts the small snowman on the nightstand next to the bed. I did. I didn't know the season meant so much to you. It didn't used to, but I've been reading the Bible you gave me. You don't know how happy that makes me. Had to do something to distract myself with the horse being buried outside my window. I'm sorry. I wish you didn't have to see that. Don't apologize. When I first saw them digging a hole, I was hoping it was for me. You can't talk like that. Not anymore. We have a deal. I know. I won't. Was that Starlight they were putting down? Who told you about Starlight? Who do you think? It was his favorite horse. He always talked about him. Don't get wrapped up in thinking about it. Here. Look! Beth picks up the Santa doll from the floor. Ho, ho, ho! Now what do you want for Christmas? <laughs> you know what I want. Now it's only a matter of time until you get out of here. Delayed gratification is a way of life for a soldier, isn't it? So do you want to get into the Christmas spirit or not? Beth picks up the miniature manger and puts it on the table. Can you put it up somewhere? Up somewhere? I want to be able to look up and see it, like a star or something. There's not really a place for it. Up there. Chrissy points to a shelf with a photograph of a soldier on it with her arms half extended. A length of rope binds Chrissy's hands to the bedpost. You want me moving his picture? It's okay. Take it down. Beth goes to the shelf and pulls down a picture of a soldier and admires it before setting it down on the floor next to Chrissy's bed. She then arranges the manger for Chrissy to see. How's this? Chrissy ignores Beth and reaches for the picture frame, but it remains out of reach. Is this all right, Chrissy? Chrissy? What are you doing? It's fine, Beth. <clears throat> Can I have the picture, Beth? You could have just asked. I know we've had our moments, Chrissy, but I want you to know I have a good heart. That's why he sent you here to us. He knew I'd hold your happiness above mine. Beth offers the photo to Chrissy and then rips it away, leaving Chrissy half-extended once more. But you promise you'll eat every scrap and bill I give you? Because this little hunger strike of yours has gone far enough. I promise. Don't you want Luke Adler's son to be as strong as he was? You may be through with that child, but that child isn't through with I you. I said I'll eat. Jesus. I'm going to go make you something. We have leftover chicken and dumplings. Beth hands over the photograph and leaves the room. Beth? Beth, now annoyed, comes back in. Yes? Don't you have more? More? 
it just doesn't give that Christmas feel, you know? I can barely see this stuff. Aren't there lights over there? Beth sighs and then picks up the tangled ball of Christmas lights from off the floor. Do you have anything else in the box? Maybe some garland or something? You have to give me a second. These are all tangled. Here, I'll fix them. You get the other stuff. Okay, okay. Here. Beth hands the lights to Chrissy and begins to look for garland. I can't go chop you down a Christmas tree, too, you know. This will be enough. Well, there's no garland, so it'll have to be. Can you plug the lights in for me? You're not going to electrocute yourself, are you? No, none of that talk anymore. I'll be good. Just... Give me a pretty prison cell. Don't be so dramatic. What would you call it? Tying me up here for these couple of months? You didn't give us much of a choice doing what you were going to do. Why would I stay if he wasn't going to come back? Why'd you come to begin with? Do you think I'd be here if I knew he had a wife? You would have seen his ring. I didn't see no ring. If it makes you feel any better, I don't think he was very faithful to me either. He had a lot of fans in Kabul. You will respect my husband in this house. He was a good man, a brave man, and he was fighting over there to keep us safe. And look what it got him, a free American flag and someone who'd kill his child with a coat hanger if she had the chance. You saw him a mile away, didn't you? Figured you'll do your Delilah routine, get knocked up, and get out of a war. I loved him. Oh, you loved him. I still do. You say that, but you have the last piece of him on this earth growing inside you, and you wanted to slaughter it like Herod himself. Chrissy has now fully untangled the ball into a single robe of lights. That was before the horse. Before the horse? When Luke died, all I wanted was to get shipped back out to Bagram and drive a Humvee until I found an IED like he did. But with starlight passing, something turned in me. There's already enough death and dying in the world, and I don't want to be a part of it just yet. I want to honor Luke with this child. I want him to be like his daddy, smart and kind and free. Beth sits down next to Chrissy and takes her by the hand. Yes, Chrissy. Life is the answer and the way. I'm going to go get you lunch. Beth gets up, and as she's about to leave, Chrissy flinches in pain and holds her belly. How? What's the matter? Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Just a kick. You want to feel it? He kicks hard. Really? Chrissy nods. Beth puts her hand on Chrissy's baby bump. He stopped. Here, put your head on it. Maybe you can hear his heart. You can hear their heart like that? Chrissy smiles and nods and adjusts the lights to make room. Beth puts her head down. I hear it! It's faint, but it's there. Little one, I can't wait to meet you. Chrissy quickly swings her hands over Beth's head and strangles her with the Christmas lights. <laughs> Beth kicks and yelps before becoming motionless. Chrissy then takes the photo frame and breaks the glass to cut the rope from each of her wrists. Let's ride, kid. Blackout. And <laughs>
Merry Christmas. So, Paradise City uh, is essentially about Axl Rose while in LA singing about Bloomington, Indiana. And so that's where I, I staged the play and also just deals with, you know, being one place and trying to figure out where your home is. And uh, that's what Chrissy Ramirez was trying to do when she touched down on the Adler farm. So I, I guess I was just exploring uh, and figuring out uh, in, in the previous, in the main play, leave about home and, and where to go from there. And so uh, this was where uh, Before the Horse came from. Right. Thank you, Jared. Uh, next up, we have The Thought That Counts by Jennifer Reichert, uh, inspired by the song Baba O'Reilly by The Who, uh, also referenced in Free Flag by Tim Davis, and uh, featuring the character Robert from her play Tex. Uh, and we have uh, Jenny Curla and Will Rogers. The Thought That Counts. Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, 1990. A teenage girl's room with a large brown teddy bear on the bed, a classic Outsiders poster on the wall, and a collage of magazine cutouts of girls and phrases on poster board. A mini Christmas tree with colored lights sits in the window. Outside, the snow blows in white-out conditions, a reflected Christmas tree hovering in the storm. Becca, 15, bookish and awkward, sits on the floor wrapping gifts. An array of gift wrap, bows, ribbons, and tags cover the rug. A handful of small wrapped gifts are piled on the side. The little drummer boy plays on a tape player, and she hums along. From the hallway, a bellowing voice calls. Where's all the stuff? I need paper and tape. Becca keeps wrapping. She pulls a fleece pullover out of a small shopping bag, folds it carefully, and lays it on a sheet of gift wrap. She pulls out a jar of dry-roasted peanuts and places it on the folded fleece. She frowns at it. There's a banging at the door. Becca! I need the scissors and tape, now! Hold your horses! I'm almost done! The door handle rattles. It's locked. Are you wrapping my present? What'd you get me? No. Well, then you can let me in. Don't be such a brat. I have to wrap Dad's gift before he gets here from the airport. It's too big to hide. It's almost 6.30. Becca's curiosity is peaked if she gets up and opens the door. Robert, 16. Athletic. Oh. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, sorry. An athletic, cool guy. Holds a large, heavy box uh, in a Radio Shack bag and other large shopping bags on his elbows. He sets the large box on the bed and tosses the other bags onto the corner. He points his finger in her face. Don't look in those, nosy. <laughs> oh, she closes the door and locks it. He picks a roll of gift wrap and unrolls it on the floor. Hey, I bought that paper. You have to buy paper, too. Jeez, I'll give you money. You don't need all of it. How did you get so much stuff? What is that? Robert carefully pulls the box out of the Radio Shack bag and sets it on the floor. He proudly Vanna Whites the shiny box. <laughs> it's a ham radio. The best one they had. Why? So Dad can call home whenever he wants while he's in Montana. Annie Kara says she has one here so we can talk anytime we want. Not just on Sunday nights. 
No more long-distance bills. It's totally free, except the radio. This one has a digital continuous tuner. It's going to blow his mind. Robert Munch talking on a CB radio. Uh, breaker, breaker, uh, one nine. Can you, sh- come in, come in. I got my ears on you. Yeah. How did you get this? I've been saving all semester, working holidays. I got paid today, so I stopped on the way home and did all my Christmas shopping. I've been planning this for months. She eyes her own meager pile of gifts. He sits down and starts cutting paper from the roll. Ah, well, good for you. She returns to wrapping the fleece and peanuts. She considers the combo. Is that yours for Dad? She nods. She tries a new way of folding the gift wrap around the peanuts and fleece. Dry roasted. Yeah. <laughs> she rips off the torn paper, refolds the fleece. She sets it at a new sheet on a new sheet of paper, adds the peanuts on top again. There's no neat way to wrap the folded fleece in the jar. She rolls the peanuts up in the fleece, wraps the paper around the roll, snatching the tape away from Robert, and he reaches for it. What's your damage? Nothing. I'm so happy for you, Mr. Pants. Must be nice to have a job. She messily tapes the gift shut, slaps a bow on it. She reaches for a tangle of gift tags, yanks one out. Robert picks up the tape and neatly finishes wrapping the ham radio. Oh, yeah. It was hard not to spend it. Especially when Kyle and Brendan bought tickets to go skiing on Duck Mountain after New Year's. They rub it in my face so bad. (laughs) But I know Dad is going to be so excited about this. He's going to try to set it up right away, so it's worth it. She scribbles on the gift tag. He takes a gift tag, waves with a pen. Here. She throws on the pen, slaps the tag on the gift with tape. Hey, don't spaz out. He neatly writes on the gift tag. She gathers up her gifts and lays them on the dresser, eyeing that wrapped radio and the jumble of shopping bags. She climbs onto her bed, grabs a book, and pretends to read, turning her back on him. He tapes the tag on the box and adds a big red bow. Becca's eyes well with tears. He puts out a hand mixer and sits down to wrap it. Becca snorfles. He looks up at her back. (laughs) Becca? What's wrong with you? Robert starts wrapping the mixer. So I got nice Christmas presents. No big deal. Why are you upset about it? It's just Dad's home for almost only a week for Christmas before he has to go back to Montana to work and we're all apart again. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if when he misses home, misses us, he could eat some of his favorite peanuts that he shared with us during hockey night in Canada and think of me. And I could eat them here, and it would be like I was watching it with him instead of watching all by myself while you were out on dates with Janice. Becca. But now he's going to have this amazing magic radio from Amazing You and be able to just talk to us. He doesn't need freaking peanuts from me in a fleece sweater. My gift is ruined now. It's a nice sweater. It was a buy one, get one free at Zeller's. (laughs) She snorfles again. Are you crying? I know, I'm such a baby. Don't cry, it's Christmas gifts. It's not for being sad about it. He gets up and tries to see her face. She buries her head in her pillow and cries. He awkwardly pats her shoulder, then goes back to wrapping, keeping an eye on her. He writes a gift tag for the wrapped hand mixer. Come on, Bex. Please don't cry. What if... I can write the tag from both of us. He pulls another gift tag from the tangle, starts writing. Her tear-stained face pops up from under the pillow and she watches him. He pulls off the first tag from the radio and puts on the new one. She starts to cry harder. He looks up and sees her. You saved up. You, you can make your gift from both of us, too. She's unable to get words out through the tears. He looks at her helpless till finally. Gabby, yeah, your gift is better than mine. I got the radio so that he could call home, but those peanuts are home. And I really wish my name was on them, too. Please? 
Christmas isn't a competition. We're a team, right? She is sobbing now. <laughs> he writes a new tag and stands up to take the tag off her wrap gift on the dresser. She slides off the bed and stops his hand. I don't want you to be sad, Bex. Not sad. But you're crying. I was sad, but then you... And then I was crying because I was happy because I'm really lucky for you to be my brother. To say my gift was better when you... He replaces the tag on her gift with the new one from both of them. She hugs him tightly. He hugs her back tightly until she stops crying, rocking her back and forth. A minute. She pulls out of the hug and has a hard time looking at him. She smiles. Anyways, I'm the lucky one. I know. One, you're my sister. And two, he hugs her tightly. I'm getting a new fleece sweater for Christmas. <laughs> Becca yells and slaps at his arms. But he just squeezes her more tightly. You ruin it! He smiles, lifts her off the ground, and spins her upside down and starts tickling her. Blackout. End of play. Again, that was The Thought That Counts by Jennifer Riker, inspired in part by Bob O'Reilly. Um, so, uh, when I got this song, I, I looked at the lyrics and it was about um, a father who moves his family south to have a better life, and, and then there's also in the chorus, this teenage wasteland. So, I knew I wanted to write it about teenagers, and so that's why I picked uh, Robert and, and, and Becca. And um, uh, originally, it had been that Becca was going to like run away because she didn't want to move to Montana. Uh, but then I remembered a moment uh, in my own life that I had with my brother, and I wanted to kind of crystallize that about um, realizing, like, the connection of a family. So that's what inspired this one. All right, and next up, we have Seven Fishes by Allie Keller, inspired by the song Blackbird by The Beatles. Uh, from Free Play by Tim Davis, and featuring the characters Dom, Gia, and Nona from her play Un Altero Errore Nella Familia. Uh, and we have Jersey, uh, Cleo, Melissa, and Julia. Seven Fishes, a very short holiday screenplay by Allie Keller. Close on a section of a long handwritten list. Clams, Nona, Dom, Take Out Trash, Gemma, Gabby. A pen with a hot pink pom-pom on top crosses out Gemma, then Gabby. It hovers next to Nona. It taps the page. Interior, Gia's apartment living room, day. Gia Bonfiglio, 30s, wearing hot pink Adidas sweats, sits on the floor surrounded by a sea of trash bags. On the table in front of her is a small mountain of perfectly wrapped gifts. Next to them sit two empty gift boxes waiting to be filled. She scans the floor around her, then looks back at the empty gift boxes. She picks a calculator up off the floor. She looks to the empty boxes, shakes her head, and puts it in one of the trash bags. 
She dumps out a different trash bag and looks through the contents. Tissues, wrappers, and a leather portfolio with her name inscribed on the front. She sits back, deflated. Her smart watch buzzes. It's Dom. Interior, a supermarket aisle, day. Dom, 30s, tall and lanky, stands in front of rows of canned food on his cell phone. Where the hell are you? You were supposed to be here by 3 o'clock. It's 3.27. Yeah, Dom, I'm almost there. Dom looks around frantically for a second and spots a little old lady rounding the corner into the produce section. Nona, where are you going? Are you even in your car? He starts to run after Nona. Exterior parking lot, Gia's car, day. Gia gets into her car. Yes, I'm in the car. She slams her car door closed. Interior supermarket fish counter, day. Through the glass of a supermarket seafood counter, through the rows of cut fish, the eyes of Nona are seen. She is a small Italian woman in her 80s. Her wrinkly face is pressed against the glass. She taps the glass above the octopus. No. No calamari this year. Nona turns around. The other side of the counter. Your blood pressure. The whole family's blood pressure. It's Christmas. The doctor said. The doctor said to watch my stress levels, too, so stop aggravating me. Interior, supermarket entrance day. Gia runs into the store and glances around. Then she hears... Stop aggravating you! She takes off towards Dom's voice by the fish counter. I'm the one who's gotta be the fuck... Nona shoots him a look. Freaking grocery police. Gia runs up to them. Hey! Hey, what's going on? Why are you upset? They turn to her and take in what she's wearing. What? That's what you wore to work? She pulls out her sweatshirt. It's casual this time of year. You shouldn't even be working this close to Christmas. Christmas is until Thursday. Relax! Did you take your medication today? I'll take them when I get home. You gotta take heart stuff seriously. Take them at the same time every day. Can't possibly be true. You take them too. <laughs> no, I don't. I and God knows you're never on time for anything. Your poor, poor brother had to switch shifts today. Sorry. It's fine. I'm working later, which is also when you'll take your meds. Right now, we all get to be together, huh? What's better than this? Dom puts his arm around and takes Nona's hand. What's more important than family? She pats his face and turns back around to the counter and points to the clams. No clams this year either. But they're baked! It's fine, Dom. <laughs> and I switched back to the old menu during Gia's leave of absence the last two years. I switched a lot already for this low-sodium garbage the doctors brainwash you two about. I'm not changing anything else this year just because Gia's back and defective. She's not defective. She's got a mollusk allergy. For a bonfiglio, that's defective. It's fine. Really, I can just bring fish sticks or something for my seventh fish. I've got a beer batter recipe. Nona raises an eyebrow to Gia. She's got murder in her eyes. You never cease to be a disappointment. A beat. Nona turns back to the counter. What, do you got a death wish or something? You're the one who started in with the clams. I'm just looking out for you. And I'm trying to be a team player. Stazito, I can't focus on the clams with the two of you like this. We're leaving and you two are going to confession on the way home. She starts walking away. Bickering while we're shopping for the feast of the seven fishes. A feast for the Lord's birthday. What would Jesus say? Interior <laughs> The room is decked out for Christmas. There are presents everywhere. Dom continues looking under things. Photos, couch cushions, nativity scenes. Find it? No, not yet. I cannot be late again. Gabby, mid-30s, a fair northern Italian woman, walks in. She's pretty pregnant. You're already late. 
and dinner's gonna be ready and I'm too tired to look at look after Stella and Nona. Just stay home tonight. We need money to pay all those off. Why don't you have Gia come help? A third person to look after? It's not gonna help. Dom picks up one of the nativity scenes to look under it. Ease up, Gabby. She's really changed. You'd be leaving your mother and daughter in her care. Do not lie about this, Dom. What are you talking about? You had to miss your shift the other day because she was late. And she started a fight about clams. <laughs> Sounds like the same old Gia to me. How did you even hear about that? Nona told me. Dom puts the nativity scene down. I don't need you taking sides between them. I'm not. I'm taking your side. I know you want everyone together again, but you forcing her on everyone isn't the way to do that. Nona walks in the front door holding giant grocery bags. What's in those? Hey, you hear me? She rushes past them to the kitchen. <laughs> that better not be octopus and clams. Shut your face. Gabby leaves. <laughs> Dom finds his name tag in his pocket. Madro. Gabby returns holding clams. Tell me again how your sisters earned our trust. You were the one who so desperately wanted her back here. Gabby gestures to a statue of St. Jude. You better start asking St. Jude for help on this. Gabby leaves. Dom walks over to St. Jude. She's not a lost cause. Close on the face of St. Jude. Interior of Gia's apartment living room day. The severed head of the same St. Jude statue on Gia's living room floor. She grabs it and throws it into a garbage bag. She ties off the bag. Her watch buzzes with a reminder to take her medication. She deletes it in all future reminders. Interior, Gia's apartment living room later. Gia leaves her apartment carrying the trash. Besides the gifts on the table, the living room is empty. Interior, Gia's apartment hallway, day. Gia throws the trash bag into a trash chute at the end of the long hallway. Gia. Interior, Gia's apartment hallway, day. Gia sprints around the corner of the hallway towards her door. G. She pulls out her keys. Dom rounds the corner not too far behind her. Gia. Gia struggles to get the key into the lock. She drops her keys. Dom's foot lands on top of them. What is wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? Why'd you run away from me? He picks up the keys and hands them to Gia. She takes them and does not go to open the door. You're mad at me for the clams and the octopus. So you ran? I didn't want to get yelled at. Dom raises his eyebrows. Gia doesn't respond. You planning on opening the door anytime soon? Let's just talk out here. Why, you got something to hide? A beat. Gia shakes her head no and unlocks the door. They go in. Interior, Gia's apartment living room, continuous. Gia walks far into the living room, but Dom stops short when he sees how barren the apartment is. What? Where's all your stuff? Don't get upset. Why is your place empty? It's not empty. The only thing in your place are Christmas gifts. Promise not to get upset? No. Dom? <laughs> just tell me what's happening. I'm moving. Dom punches the counter. Can you not? You just started coming around again and now you're already moving? This isn't working, Dom. I know that you had the big happy family picture in your head, but nothing has changed. So you're skipping town? That's a little dramatic, G, even for you. It's easier on everyone if I'm not around. Admit it. God, I can't believe Gabby was right. You really haven't changed at all. That's not fair. I'm trying to help. You know how you help? You stay. And you help. You show up on time. That's how you prove to your family that you care after disappearing for two years, not by leaving again. I was forced out because things with Nona became even worse than they'd always been. 
and the family, including you, were not helping me. You just let it happen. Say whatever you want about how everyone else treated you, but I've always been there for you, and I always will be, but you gotta do your part. That's what you said to get me to break up with Oliver. That that was the condition of my return, and I did that, and still... That was months ago. How are you not over that? He was the love of my life. Don't be dramatic. We were looking at rings. He had red hair. You don't marry men with red hair. <laughs> I didn't marry him because you asked me not to. So we'd be a whole family. I cared enough to get you on speaking terms with everyone again. But they wouldn't keep you around if your last name changed to Mick Leprechaun. <laughs> but you didn't even try to change her mind for me. I'm always the problem. I'm always the one who needs to change. She's 80. What do you expect? Nothing. I expect nothing to change, and I can't take it anymore. So you just give it up. It's the only thing left to do. His face hardens. You can give up on us, but you can't escape us. You're a bonfiglio for life. <laughs> Remember that. Dom slams the door. Gia begins to cry. She chokes back the tears. She takes out the list and adds something with a pink pom-pom pen. The side of the pen reads, number one, sister. Interior Nona's dining room, afternoon the following day. An absurdly large Italian family descends upon a dining room table full of pasta and seafood dishes. Gia approaches Gabby to start a conversation. Dom steps beside Gabby and ushers her to her seat at the table. The family members closest to Gia pretend not to have seen that. Gia tries to approach several family members, but is given the cold shoulder. Everyone finds their way to their seats except Gia. There's only one seat left at the head of the table. Gia sits. The family notices. Get out of Nona's chair! What are you doing? You don't deserve that at the table! Gia gets up and the family begins to calm down. She leaves and returns with a folding chair. She fits slightly behind into the side of Nona's chair. She grabs a plate as she sits down. Nona walks in with the final dish. Everyone oohs and ahs. They join hands and close their eyes. Benedice, Signore, no enquiste tu doni. Cestiamo per ricevere dalla tua generosità. Gia takes a labored breath in. Her Cristo nostro Signore. Amen. Gia's face begins to swell. Amen. Everybody digs in. <laughs> the family happily passes their plates around. Gia's face grows so swollen it's unrecognizable. Gia's POV, a big happy Italian family with Dom in the center. The view of her family begins to fade to black. A loud thud, the sound of a plate crashing on the floor. Back to scene. The family turns towards the sound. Gia's chair is empty. Gia! Somebody call 911. At Gia's seat, a single clam sits on a plate. It's missing one bite. Interior Nona's dining room a week later. An absurdly large Italian family all dressed in black. Nona shows off the smartwatch she's wearing. And she even set it up to tell me when to take my pills every day. So now I can't forget and I'll live forever. She was always a thoughtful girl. Gabby sits beside Dom, who's watching Nona. She didn't even like Gia. It's her wake. What is she going to say? Gia's dramatics finally paid off? He looks at Gabby, a little taken aback by what she said. She gave you all her old jewelry. She left us all her money. She set up a college fund for Stella and little Nikki here. At least I'm not pretending like isn't that what you were upset about a minute ago? Dom nods. 
Why don't you open her gift? It's still under the tree. Maybe that'll make you feel better. Or a thousand times worse. Our last conversation was a fight. That was bad enough. This is the last... anything. I know. But that's gonna be true no matter when you open it. Gabby rubs Dom's back. He looks to his gift still sitting under the tree. A beat. He walks over to it, sits down, and removes the wrapping paper. He takes a deep breath and opens the box. Inside the box is a piece of paper wrapped around a full bottle of Lexapro. Dom unrolls the paper. It's Gia's list with all the tasks crossed out, except for the last one. You're a Bonfiglio for life. Dom flips the list over. It's written on the back of a holiday photo from 2015. Nona, Dom, and a pregnant Gabby. Gia is not there. The bottom of the picture reads, Merry Christmas from the entire Bonfiglio family. Dom cries. Final fade out. And uh, that was inspired by uh, Blackbird by the Beatles. cohorts this year have no problem with the sad Christmas. Um, uh, I, I mean, the song is super famous, so I've known it for a really long time, and uh, I find this song, like, very profoundly upsetting, uh, to the point that, like, when I listen to it and listen to the lyrics, I start crying. So a lot of the times I just listen to the music part. Um... Because to me, the imagery in the song, the idea that there is a small blackbird that you can't see in the middle of the night that is broken and can't see anymore and is still trying so hard to be heard anyway, that this is the moment that they're waiting for and they're gonna try to fly. And even if somebody heard them, they won't be able to find them. And they'll never know if anybody heard them. It's so, like, it's clearly so upsetting to me. Which is why I don't listen to the song ever. So, it was basically like, so the song's about suicide, clearly, only to me, but uh, <laughs> it's very clear what the holiday play needed to be this year. And then I was like, which one of my characters would kill herself? Probably Gia, because she had a rough other play. Uh, okay, so it's that. Um, uh, and she uh, is sort of broken with her relationship from her family and can't really see straight and can't really think straight and is kind of broken down and is still trying and feels like this is the only way left that she has to try. And something that also very much strikes me about the song is that somebody else is singing it. Uh, so somebody did know the story, or at least enough of it, or after the fact. And to me, like, that character felt like Dom. It's the only person in Gia's life that could put enough of the pieces together to be able to see straight later. Um, 
is how that happened this year. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a break to get some snacks and some food. Hello, this is Jennifer Reichert, a Cry Havoc resident playwright and the producer of the Cry Havoc podcast. While our live audience takes a break for holiday cookies and beverages, I wanted to let you know that you, or a theater lover in your life, can get all of these very short holiday plays, plus 10 others by Cry Havoc playwrights, when you support Cry Havoc's new play development and educational programming this holiday season. Just go to www.cryhavoccompany.org gift to learn how. Copies of the holiday plays will continue to be available at this address even after the holiday season has ended. Now, we will rejoin the event with Jim Fagan and Annalisa Chamberlain reading Fire and Ice by Julia Bilbao, inspired by the song Mama, I'm Coming Home by Ozzy Osbourne, referenced in the screenplay Makes Three by Kit Lavoie, featuring Charles from her play Sanctuary, and Sydney from Kit's play 34 Weeks and Four Days. Fire and Ice. Roseville, Ohio, Christmas Eve. A car sits on the side of the road in an empty parking lot at the foot of a gigantic uh, pine tree decked out in Christmas lights. A sign reads, Grand Reopening. Park here to visit the Roseville tree on its 100-year anniversary. God bless us all and Merry Christmas. Sydney and Charles, both 19 years old, sit on the hood of his car. It's weird seeing it with lights again. Yeah. Sure, you don't want to ride home. I can come back. It's okay. I have my bike. I just wanted to ride here, so I had an excuse to see you. Oh wow! Oh, sounds like you like me. <laughs> I've never been with a college guy, you know. <laughs> it's kind of hot. Sydney begins kissing Charles' neck and he flinches. Sydney, d d don't. What? I thought you liked that. Don't you kind of feel weird doing that here? Where my mom died? It's okay. She'd be happy to see that I've finally given little Charlie Turner a chance. The cute, awkward neighbor who always had a crush on me. Sydney resumes kissing Charles' neck and reaches for his belt buckle. No! He pushes her hand away. I, I don't see why you think that this is appropriate on any level. <laughs> God, you are such a prude. I just wanted to thank you for the ride. You should never thank anyone like that. <laughs> Plus, you're my girlfriend. Please don't say that word. Girlfriend? Oh, come on. We've been exclusive for almost a year. Uh, it's kind of the next step. You've been away at school. How can you be so sure we've been exclusive? <laughs> you are really hot and cold, you know that? <laughs> you're the one... You're the one who doesn't want to hook up right now. I want to, but not here. And I don't really think you want to either. You know, you don't have to pretend that everything is fine. Everything is fine. What I, whatever. Whatever. You should go. What are you going to do, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, I like to talk to her. 
It sounds weird, I know. Sorry, you don't have to talk about it. That's all right, it's been five years. Is your trunk unlocked? I should grab my bike. Sydney walks around to the back of the car and pulls her bike out of the trunk. Charles opens the door to the passenger seat. Don't forget your backpack. Charles grabs her backpack. He's surprised by how heavy it is. Sydney snatches it from him. I got it. There's an awkward silence. Sydney shuffles, quickly pecks him on the cheek, and heads for the tree. Thanks for the ride. Charles hesitates for a moment, but jogs after her. What's in the backpack, Sid? Just some... books. I read to her. Those are some heavy books. Which ones? The Bible. Which version? <laughs> the holy one. <laughs> You're not religious. What are you going to do, Sydney? I'm going to spend some time alone. Time at the place where my mother died on the anniversary of her death. It's really none of your business. I realize that, uh, but at this point in our relationship, you shouldn't lie to me about it. We are not in a relationship. I'm not leaving until you tell me. It's for your own good, okay? Please go. Charles grabs hold of the backpack and rips the zipper open. The contents of the bag spill out on the ground between them. A large can of gasoline and a pack of matches. They freeze. <laughs> I'm burning it down, Charles. You're burning the Roseville tree down? Yes. Just because it's the 100th anniversary, it doesn't mean it's okay to celebrate and decorate this tree again. I lost my mother because of it. I understand that this is hard for you, but this... Arson is a felony. Not if nobody gets hurt. It'll just be a misdemeanor. Just be a Sydney, what, what has gotten into you? Everyone has forgotten what happened here, Charles. No one can forget what happened here. They can't? When they were sipping hot cocoa and singing jingle bells at the top of their lungs, were they remembering that my mom's car hit a patch of ice, swerved off the road into this tree? Were they remembering that there were presents for her family in the trunk? I saw the lighting ceremony coverage on Good Morning Roseville, and so did my dad. You want to know what he did? He had a drink for the first time in three and a half years. Nobody thought about how this might affect us. Is he okay? No, he's not okay. None of this is okay. It is terrible what happened. But this tree, it brings people together. Great. You're just as brainwashed as everyone else. No, I, I understand how you feel. I didn't go to the ceremony, okay? But if I hadn't known your mom, maybe I would have. It's the only Christmas tradition these people have. You know what my Christmas tradition is now? My dad and I pretending it isn't Christmas. Nobody cares that my mother died and that my Christmas was ruined. So it's time someone ruined theirs. You are literally the Grinch who stole Christmas. <laughs> That's because nobody literally cared. At first, someone would be at our home every morning to make me breakfast and take me to school. But once my dad met his new wife, they stopped. <sighs> Just because my dad found a replacement mom, it doesn't mean I was okay. Sydney seizes the can of gasoline and unscrews the top. You need to leave. I don't want you getting in trouble. Charles intercepts Sydney and takes the gasoline. He begins to pour it around the tree. What are you doing? 
Some of us didn't stop caring, Sydney. Some of us kept giving your rides to school and helped you with your homework when you got suspended for doing God knows what in the boys' locker room and held your hair back when you were vomiting a prom and even though you wouldn't go to that prom with them. Okay, some of us want you to be okay. All I want for you is to be happy. Charles takes a match and strikes it. After a deep breath, he moves it towards the tree. Charles, wait! No, no, if this is what it's going to take to make you see that I'm here for you. Sydney snatches the match out of his hand. She shakes it out. Fighting back the urge to cry, she crumples into his arms. Charles holds her. I'm right here, Sydney. I'm not going anywhere. You're here for two weeks. Then you leave again. Everyone I'll... always leaves. I will be back. And you could always visit me in the meantime, you know? Really? I would love that. They kiss. I guess we should probably get out of here. Sydney begins to pack up her bag. Can I give you a ride home now? Yeah, that'd be great. They start walking back to the car, but after a moment Sydney stops, she looks back at the tree. I'd actually still like to talk to her. It'll only take a sec. Take your time. I'll be at the car. Wait. Will you come with me? I, I want you there. They walk to the tree. Sydney looks up at it, and her eyes well with tears. Hi, Mom. Merry Christmas. She smiles at Charles and takes his hand. Mom, this is my boyfriend, Charles. Blackout. End of play. <laughs> And that was inspired by Mama, I'm Coming Home by Ozzy Osbourne. <coughs> heard the lyrics I was struck by these dichotomies um, and lost and found um, you took me in you drove me out um, and how it was very much describing a, a broken relationship in a way um, and and it reminded me of Sydney who I mean if you look at the map you can really understand um, <laughs> everything that's happened to her, so I don't have to explain it here. Um, but, uh, but so I wanted to revisit her relationship with Charles and, um, and, and why she has the sort of erratic behavior she has, um, especially towards the people that she loves. And I looked back at Kit's play, where she originated from, and there was this one line about how... Um, she shouldn't bring this guy into, she shouldn't experiment with this guy in order to exercise 
um, her mother, what her mother was. Um, so I, the song is called Mama, I'm Coming Home as well. So I was like, Mom, Mom, oh my God, this is meant to be. Um, so Mama, I'm Coming Home, Mama, I'm going <laughs> to, her mother's gone and so she's going to go home to the place where her mother died. Um, so she's both lost and found, um, lost because she's, her mother died and found because, um, this man in her life loves her and understands her and accepts her no matter what. Next up, we have Repeat, Repeat by Jerzy Gwizdowski, uh, inspired by the song Joy to the World, uh, as performed by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, as reference to Jenny Curlin's Nest with All of It, um, and featuring the characters Maureen and Gus from his play All Over Me, How Does It Feel? And we have Caitlin Wilcox and Will Clark. <laughs> A fifth grade English classroom, December 1985. Handmade Christmas decorations adorn the walls, though they are in the process of being undecked. Garland half dangling, piles of discarded snowflakes and stars pulled up from the wall, and a garbage can in the center of the room. Maureen, 31, enters on the phone, carrying the receiver into the room, cord dangling behind her. She gets it as far inside as she can and continues cleaning up her classroom, taking down handmade Christmas decorations from the walls and placing them in the trash. I don't know, Craig. What do you want me to say? Maureen pulls a Santa off a nearby wall and crumples it. Well, I'm not going to say that. She tosses the Santa ball into the bin from a distance. Because I'm not sorry. I said what I meant. I don't want to go this year and she doesn't want me. The phone cord is taut. Maureen places the receiver on her desk and stretches to pull decorations down from the far wall. She grabs a cheery-looking snowman from the wall. She'll only be disappointed if you're not there. It's a family holiday, and I'm not part of the family, remember? Maureen tosses the snowman into the trash, then pulls a red and green felt stocking from her purse. Well, it's her house, and her fake tree, and her slimy ham. Maureen picks up a lumpy construction paper snowman. She stops. She pulls the cheery snowman from the trash and examines the two side by side. Well, then you can eat it. Eat it! I can make do with peppermint schnapps, ugly snowmen, and gifts from my students. Maureen looks into the stocking. She turns it upside down. Several lumps of coal tumble onto her desk. Oh, come on. <laughs> I don't get to have Christmas this year, Craig. I'm on the bad list. Maureen looks at the lumpy snowman. Gus Hershenbruchmeyer. <laughs> yes. He's 10, enters. He's red-cheeked, backpacked, tracking snow through the door. One of those kids whose mouth is always hanging open. <laughs> Maureen does not see him. I'm not trying to be difficult. I am difficult, so just go without me. She hangs up. Gack. She takes the lumpy snowman and rips it into dozens of confetti pieces, sprinkling them into the trash, whistling the tune of Let It Snow. Hey, Miss Dugdale. <laughs> she turns to see Gus. Mother! Hey, Gus. Where's your mother? In the car. You kind of turned around. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Did you forget your house keys again? No. 
<laughs> Backpack? No. I told her I had to go pee. You told her you had to go to the restroom. Well, then you should probably go. Gus just stands there. It's Christmas break, Gus. You don't need a hall pass. I don't actually have to pee. Sorry. I don't actually have to rest. <laughs> then why did you tell your mother that? Because I was lying. <laughs> I got that. Why? Because I don't want her to know why I really came back. And why is that? I came back to get my snowman. <laughs> Your snowman? Yeah. Did you just throw it away? <laughs> yes. Why? You know, Gus, I could report you to the honor committee for cheating. What? Copying another student's work is very serious. It's unethical, even on a snowman. Oh. One of these days, Connor isn't going to be next to you to copy from. Or he won't let you anymore. And frankly, I don't know why you're cheating off Connor anyway. You, should cheat. you shouldn't cheat off anybody, but you get better grades if you cheated off of Andrea Bukacek. <laughs> Andrea doesn't like me. Well, maybe she's difficult. No, it's because I put peanut butter in her hair. <laughs> but Connor doesn't care if I cheat off him. That doesn't make it right. I know. I feel really bad. He lets me do whatever I want. He asked me if he could make a snow fort with me and my brothers, and I told him I couldn't because I got, I'm grounded, but I'm not grounded. And then he asked if I wanted to make a snowman, and I said that my family didn't believe in snowmen. But we do believe in snowmen. <laughs> then he made that one in class, and he wrote me a note saying, to my friend Gus Herbrickschmeyer. <laughs> We can make a snowman together. But I'm not his friend. I just copy off him. Gack. He even spelled my name perfect. Perfectly. You can't even spell my name most of the time, Miss Dugdale. But Connor is always doing really nice stuff for me, and all I do is make fun of him. I'm sorry, Gus. The snowman is gone. This is going to ruin my whole Christmas. <laughs> Well, I hope you learn your... Maureen stops mid-sentence and heads to her desk. Learn my what? Maureen pulls the stocking from her desk and places the coal lumps in. Take this. Why are you giving me coal? It's for Connor. It's his present from you. But coal is for bad kids. That's not coal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a snowman. Gus looks at her, mouth agape. <laughs> Just add snow. Take that to Connor's house and show him that you care. Thanks, Miss Dogdale. Now go before your mom gets worried. See you next year, Gus. Gus looks at her again quizzically. I'll see you in three weeks. Just have a good break. <laughs> you too, Miss Dogdale. Gus exits. Maureen continues to pull down decorations. She stops, picks up the phone, and dials. Hey, listen. I changed my mind. 
No, no, I'm not going there, not a chance, but I don't want you to go either. I mean, I want to spend it with you. That's all I really want. Blackout. End of play. All right, and that was inspired by Joy to the World. Doesn't, doesn't that song make you think of that? Um, so Maureen is from a play that I wrote like five years ago, and in the time, but in the timeline of this, in like by this May, she leaves her boyfriend that she's living with and gets on a plane with Mick Jagger and flies to Africa. <laughs> and uh, and so, I, I don't know, I, I wanted to look at her in her teaching life, because like, since I wrote the play, I, I have a teaching life. And when I wrote it the first time, she was just a teacher, so she could like make grammar jokes and kind of be prescriptive in the way that she is in her life. And I kind of wanted to look at that. And then um, the, the song is... Uh, is actually a song about the book of Revelations. It's a song about like Jesus coming back, but it was reused as a, it's like a Christmas carol. So, so it's sort of like, I like the idea of reusing something cause it's like the song that's kind of about like the apocalypse, but it's about, <laughs> but we use it as, you know, a Christmas carol, which is cool. So I like the idea, I like the idea of, so this is, so I kind of want to write about, write, you know, about teaching and, and uh, not because, not because Gus is like a dumb little jerk. That's not the part about it. That's about teaching, but about like taking something that feels bad, like the coal and making, you know, making something out of it, making something good out of it was the idea. And our final piece of the evening, as is, uh, has been the case since our very first collection, is going to be the annual uh, pigeon uh, 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 screenplay. And so this is The Homing Pigeon by Jenny Curlin and Kip LaVoy, inspired by the song Danny Boy, uh, uh, referenced in Danny Boy by Rosanna Zarambo, and featuring the characters Plume, <coughs> Dubby, Charlie, and Scruples from their screenplay Pigeons and Denny and Eve from their screenplay Squab's First Christmas. And we have a cast of millions. Allie Keller, Jenny Kerfman, Caitlin Wilcox, Will Clark, Chris Comfort, Jersey Gwizdowski, Annalise Chamberlain, Julia Bilbao, Will Rogers, Matt Howard, Rosanna Sarambo, Janan Jacobson, Jerry Tobin, and me. Um, and so we don't have enough seats, but we can gather around. We're on page 30. All right. And here we go. <clears throat> the homing pigeon. Close on, a high-heeled shoe pointed on a shiny wooden dance floor. We rise up and pull back to reveal a dapper man in a tuxedo twirling an elegant woman in a silver sequin dress. Around them, an upscale holiday party is in full swing. We are interior rainbow room evening. A giant crystal chandelier hangs from the center of the space, sparkling and catching the light glinting off the gowns of the women below. We wind through the crowd past small groups of well-dressed partygoers daintily lifting hors d'oeuvres from the silver trays of passing waiters and wiping away crumbs from their perfectly painted lips. A string quartet plays deck the halls 
while onlookers smile with closed eyes, swaying their heads back and forth with the music as other groups laugh and clink glasses. Behind them, through the giant glass window, the skyline of Manhattan stretches into the distance. We push towards the window. Just as we are about to reach it, we swerve and pass through a door pushed open by a waiter with a tray full of lipstick-stained champagne flutes. Exterior, balcony of the rainbow room, continuous. Outside, the party continues with the black tie assemblage taking in the spectacular view. But we veer away from the party towards a low wall separating the balcony from its neighbor. As we get closer, we see movement on the other side of the wall. We rise up to find a pair of elegantly coiffed pigeons gliding around a frozen bird bath. Behind them, the expanse of an opulent rooftop balcony. A series of heat lamps has melted away the snow, and a veritable flock of stylish pigeons are gathered in small groups around the space. The music from the Rainbow Room party fills the air. We drift to the ground and wind through the crowd, past a group of pristine-coated pigeons pecking gingerly at artfully placed piles of crumbs. Another group daintily sips from the puddle of, around an overturned bottle of champagne, another laughing tastefully to each other, until we run smack into Denny, a gray tween pigeon. He has a Christmas light shoved deep into his mouth, causing his beak to blink red. <laughs> Eve, a bright pink tween pigeon, twists her beak at him. I don't remember the song saying anything about Rudolph having a stupid butt. <laughs> Denny shoves Eve. Plume, a plump pigeon, and Dovey, a beautifully colored ornate fruit dove, race over and huddle around the pair. Stop it, you two. She called my butt stupid. Plume pulls the light out of Denny's mouth. This is a grown-up party. You have to behave. Why don't you even have to be here? It's not fun. With the way you two behaved at the tree lighting, you're lucky you're allowed out of the nest at all. <clears throat> We brought you so you could watch the little squabs so the adults could enjoy the party. They're fine. Uncle Charlie's watching them. Denny motions across the terrace to Charlie, a handsome pigeon. If pigeons had muscles, he would be stacked. <laughs> Four cackling squabs hang off him as he lifts them with ease like weights. Uncle Charlie shouldn't have to watch them. That's why you're here. Charlie! Charlie strides over to the group. Hey, guys. He crouches in towards Eve and Debbie. Ho, ho, ho. Have you been good little pigeons this year? They have been very, very bad pigeons, Santa Charlie. <laughs> so they are going to watch the little ones, or they are not going to get any presents. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, that's okay. We're having fun. You see? How often do we get to go to a nice place like this? Go. Eve hangs her head. Fine. She stalks off towards the chattering squabs. Denny stays put. Go help your sister. I don't want to help her. She's mean, and I hate her. <laughs> as long as you live in my nest, go be nice and help your sister. Denny huffs. Whatever, but when I have a nest of my own, I'm never inviting her. <laughs> it's Christmas, Denny. <laughs> She's your only sister you've got. The only sister you've got. Denny begins to slouch off after Eve. I'd rather be brothers with a duck. <laughs> and he's gone. Charlie watches after him, then scans nervously over the refined crowd. Sure is fancy. I wish they had crusts. Who needs crust when you have rolled bread? <laughs> Just then, Scruples, a fit pigeon with copper-toned spots, hops up to the group, his wing around Bianca, a lithesome snow-white pigeon. 
Boom, Duffy! <laughs> you both look great. Charlie! Charlie gives an awkward, <clears throat> faux elegant head bow. I am honored and grateful to have... You have invited me to your party this holiday season. And good to see you, too. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us, Scruples. It's a beautiful party. This is Bianca. Bianca extends her wing towards the others. Hello, I am Bianca. <laughs> they shake wings. I like the rolled bread. Yeah, Rodolfo catered the party. He has a new technique where he rolls the bread, but he does not eat it. <laughs> Extraordinary. I don't know how he does it. Bread is a grain, which is at the base of the food pyramid. Did you know that? Bianca furrows a judgmental brow at him. Plume catches it. Huh. All I know is it's delicious, right? Pierre, a dapper gray pigeon, and Fiona, a model thin speckled pigeon, hops up to the group. Scruples, Bianca, darling! <laughs> she pecks Scruples and Bianca on either side of the beak, uh, casting a cursory glance towards Plume, Dubby, and Charlie. This is simply the most elegant party of the season, Scruples. Did you have the rolled bread? <laughs> <laughs> Scruples gestures towards Plume, Dubby, and Charlie. Fiona, Pierre, these are my old friends, Plume, Dubby, and Charlie. Lovely to meet you. Charlie curtsies. Hi. Fiona cocks her eyebrow at his handsome face and looks him up and down. Well, hello there. What do you do? <laughs> Did you know that snow is just another form of rain? They're both precipitation. Full of facts, this one. It rains on other planets in the solar system. On Jupiter, it rains diamonds. Jupiter has the most moons. Did you know that? Everyone just looks at him. Um... Thank you for inviting me to your party. I'm glad you could make it. I thought you couldn't come. Me too, but I, I could come. <laughs> Bianca sees someone in the crowd and waves wildly at them. Bug, Bugsy dear! A shockingly red bird hops over the group with a flourish. Bianca! <laughs> Bianca makes a big show of him. This is my friend, Bones. <laughs> Dubby's eyes dance over Bones' bright feathers. Are you from Indonesia too? Oh, it's a fraud, honey. It's dye. Don't tell. <laughs> Dubby blushes. Bones is an actor. He starred in a Broadway show. Were you in Cats? <laughs> he was in The Illusionist. The group ooze and ahs. Well, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. It's just as stuffy up a sleeve in a Broadway as it is a children's party. Really, I'm just glad to be working. <laughs> Sometimes people get homework. Pierre shoots him a look before. We saw Hamilton last week. How did you get in? I have a friend. It was perching room. Yeah, but I was just glad to be able to see it. It was marvelous. Pierre turns condescendingly to Plume and Dovey. It's a musical about the American Revolution. Charlie perks up. I've heard of this, where George Washington is a rapper? That's right. <laughs> That's the guy who made the bridge. No, no, Plume, George Washington was a hero. He was the man, the main general in the Revolutionary War against King George III. King George lived in London with the Redcoats. 
which they were called because of their coats. Maybe you could be in Hamilton now. No, no, no. But the Battle of Lexington and Concord were the first battles in the war. Uh, the first shot was fired in 1775. People heard it all around the world. And Paul Revere told them, the British are coming, the British are coming. Fiona, Pierre, Bianca, and Bones begin giggling into their wings. Because they were two lanterns, and one if by land. All right, Charlie. And, and two if by sea. Henry Wordsworth Longfellow wrote about it in a poem. Listen, my children, and you shall hear. Thank you, Charlie. That's a lot. But, but there's a pigeon in. Charlie notices the strange pigeons laughing at him. Poem. Charlie stops and casts his eyes to the ground. They talk about a pigeon. The group stands uncomfortably as Charlie shifts from foot to foot, his eyes on the floor. I thought you'd want to know about it. Charlie's nest is outside the third grade classroom at De La Salle Academy. Ah, are the third graders studying the Revolutionary War? <laughs> yeah, we were. <laughs> Fiona and Bianca continue to snicker to each other. Pierre turns away from Charlie. Yeah. Have you seen the new Catherine uh, Chris, uh, Fritz piece in the Lola Sculpture Garden? <laughs> <laughs> the group murmurs in appreciation. I just sat on it for hours the other week. <laughs> As the fancy pigeons chatter on about art, Charlie pl turns to Plume and Debbie. I think I'm going to go, guys. Oh, stay, Charlie. I wasn't even supposed to come. Charlie abruptly turns and launches off into the night, disappearing into the snow as he leaves the warming glow of the space heaters. Plume calls after him. Well, Merry Christmas, buddy! Plume and Dovey look at each other sadly. Then... Denny, stop it! Mom! Plume and Dovey hang their heads and stalk out of the frame. Exterior above the Manhattan streets, night. Charlie flaps dejectedly across town against the blowing snow. The happy sounds of the holiday parties drift from windows as he passes. His beak begins to tremble, holding back tears. Suddenly, he banks downtown and disappears into the snow. Dissolved to exterior Staten Island Ferry Manhattan Terminal, night. The Staten Island Ferry pulls out of its berth on Lower Manhattan. Charlie arrives just in time to see it pull away. He speeds up and wings over the water and lands on the ferry's railing. Exterior, Staten Island Ferry, night. Charlie stands on the railing, his feathers blowing in the wind and snow as the lights of Manhattan recede further into the distance. Exterior, Staten Island Waterfront, night. As the ferry pulls into port, Charlie wings off the boat over the terminal and banks towards a working-class neighborhood, soaring towards a clump of row houses decorated for the holidays. A trio of pigeons flap out of a rickety second-story porch of a three-story building, aglow with Christmas lights. They weave unsteadily through the air towards Charlie, silver tinsel draped around their necks. As they near Charlie, one of them belches, the other two howl with laughter. As they pass Charlie, one of them splits off from the other two and heads up a side street. See you guys. Have a great Christmas. You too, Hank. And they're gone. Charlie flutters to a stop and lands on the railing of the porch. Interior, rickety porch, night. The wood floor grow, glows intermittently red, white, blue, green, and yellow as the large glass bulbs of a string of Christmas lights blink on and off. Around the porch is strewn the remnants of a party. 
scattered crust crumbs, a well-pecked gingerbread man, a cluster of pine needles, tinsel strewn around the room, and puddles around an overturned bottle of apple juice and can of Bud Light in opposite corners of the room. In the center of the room, Steve, a rough-hewn blue-collar pigeon with a protruding belly, kicks tinsel into a manageable pile. From his perch on the railing, Looks like it was a good time. Steve turns and sees Charlie. He looks at him a moment, then goes back to cleaning up. What you doing here, Chuck? It's a family party. Aren't I part of this family anymore? I don't know, are you? Charlie launches himself off the railing and touches down right in front of Steve. The pile of tinsel uh, he was gathering blows off in every direction. You didn't send me an invitation. Well, it's the same day every year. You still should have invited me. Well, you knew when not to show up last year. Charlie looks away. The second great holiday concert was that same night. And the year before? It was the tree lighting. Well, we don't want to interfere with your busy schedule. Steve wings across the other side of the room and starts kicking pine needles into a pile. Don't you fly away from me. Steve wheels around <laughs> on Charlie. Hey, I haven't gone anywhere. You're the one who left. I went to school, Steve. That's what Mom wanted. They got schools in Staten Island, but that wasn't good enough for you. You had to go to a fancy academy. <laughs> I wanted to better myself. So you leave me here to deal with all this? All of what? The party looked like it was great. Not the party. Ma don't fly so good no more. <laughs> Pop got a bumble foot. You know that? <laughs> no. Lost three toes since the summer. I didn't know. I thought you knew everything. But what's it matter? What do you know? You're off learning about magnets and steam shovels, and I'm here. Love to take care of them. I thought you liked it here. I like it here, but it's not all I want for my life. Then you should have said something. I shouldn't have had to. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me. You should have taken care of me just a little bit. Did you want to go to school? Nah, school's not for me. Steve flies up to the railing and looks out over the snowy harbor to the tankers anchored in the distance. I always thought one day I'd fly out to one of those tankers, make a nest on the prow, find out where the oil comes from. It comes from the ground. It's made of dinosaurs. <laughs> Steve, Steve wheels around and launches himself at Charlie, knocking him to the ground. You son of a bitch! <laughs> Steve plants himself over Charlie and starts pecking at his face. I want to find it out for myself! <laughs> Charlie lunges at Steve and the two brothers lock on each other. They brawl, careening around the treehouse, knocking over bottles, getting tangled up in Christmas lights. They're like a pair of feathered, rage-filled hooligans. Except awkward. And kind of ineffectual. They're pigeons. They don't have hands. It's all a little bit weird. <laughs> Finally, the pair collapse on the floor, exhausted. They lay there, panting. After a moment... It's good you want to better yourself, Charlie. But why you got to be better than us? I'm not better than you, Steve. I'm not better than anybody. Charlie looks, uh, turns his head away from Steve. They made fun of me, Steve. Who made fun of you? These fancy pigeons. <laughs> they invited me to their party, and then they laughed at me. They thought I was stupid. Steve rolls towards Charlie and hoists himself up on his wing. They said you were stupid? 
They thought it. Charlie looks, turns to his brother. I'm coming home, Steve. I don't know what I was thinking. You're not stupid, Charlie. I'm not smart. You're the smartest bird in this family. You calling me dumb? No. Good, because I'd punch your beak. <laughs> Steve stands up and helps Charlie to his feet. <clears throat> we're all proud of you, Charlie. I thought you were mad at me. I am. I can be mad and proud. <laughs> you go back to school and you show them how smart you are, then you come back here and you tell me your kids about my kids about magnets. A smile creeps across Steve's face. I think they might be pretty smart too. No, I'll bet they are. School's off on the weekend, Steve. I can I can come home more often. Well, I'd like that. Me too. A boat horn blares in the night. That's you. There's another ferry in the morning. I like to see the kids. I want to tell them about this poem. It's about America. There's a pigeon in it. They'd love to see you, Chuck. The horn sounds again. Steve flaps up to the railing. He looks out through the snow at the Staten Island Ferry pulling out of its berth. Charlie lands next to him. They look out together. Charlie turns to Steve. You're a good, a good brother. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> Angle from inside the porch. Charlie and Steve perch on the railing, Christmas lights blinking around them. They watch as the Staten Island Ferry chugs out towards the brightly lit New York City skyline. At this party, they had rolled bread. Rolled bread? Don't ask. Some guy rolled it. <laughs> and left it for other birds to eat? Yeah. Now that's stupid. <laughs> the ferry sounds its horn as it passes an oil tanker festooned with Christmas lights. The brothers laugh. Final fade out. <laughs> and that was inspired by Danny Boy. <laughs> Jenny Curlin. <laughs> All right. Um, I really wanted to uh, write this holiday screenplay uh, about Charlie. Um, I wanted it to be Charlie-centric. Um, and uh, to me, and there's much debate about this song, but uh, it's about... Um, in this case, a, a person, a bird, uh, <laughs> leaving home, um, and it's it's very much about family. Uh, and uh, also, side note, Scruples made an appearance in uh, our full-length screenplay, but uh, had to be cut. So I definitely wanted to to show what a scruples fancy holiday extravaganza would look like, um, and something about a prodigal son. <laughs> yes, all of those things, and I think it was also we just wanted to have fun with the idea of you know sort of the classic fancy holiday party scene and the classic prodigal son coming home scene, and just sort of see what those things would be like with pigeons. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so, thank you, everybody, for coming. Happy holidays. Yay. 
thank you so much for joining us for this special holiday episode. Again, if you would like to get a copy of this collection of very short holiday plays for yourself or someone you love, and also support the programming of the Cry Havoc Company, including this podcast, visit www.cryhavoccompany.org gift and gift a piece of Cry Havoc for the holidays. Thanks again to everyone so much for joining us. A new season of the Cry Havoc podcast will begin in the new year. If you have not already done so, please subscribe for free on iTunes to join us again for our regular discussions about the craft of acting, writing, and directing, and about the realities of being a working artist in New York City. You can also go to iTunes to check out all of our previous episodes, including other special holiday episodes featuring very short holiday plays from previous years. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company, our upcoming events, and how you can help support the work and the community by visiting www.cryhavoccompany.org. So for myself, Jennifer Reichert, Caitlin Wilcox, Jerry Tobin, Allie Keller, Julia Bilbao, Jersey Gwizdowski, Jenny Curlin, Melissa Briner-Sanders, Annalisa Chamberlain, Will Clark, Chris Comfort, Cleo Contagenis, Matt Cowart, Jennifer Kerfman, Paul Edwards, Jim Fagan, Leah Philly, Kaven Hallman, Janan Jacobson, Phil Kenner, Erica Pappas, Will Rogers, Tanvi Shah, Helena Skogland, Rosanna Zarambo, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company. Happy Holidays, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe. <laughs>